0: Hello, friends. It is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on the show, we will consider the risks and the rewards of writing for teens. Jill Wolfson is a journalist-turned-novelist, and in recent years, she's been concentrating on that market segment known in the publishing biz as YA, for young adult, that is, books for teenagers. It is a red-hot category, commercially speaking, with mega bestsellers like The Hunger Games and The Twilight Saga. But the audience can be pretty tough-minded. And it can be tricky territory for writers, especially those who are not just peddling escapist fantasy and wish fulfillment, but who want to challenge readers with some serious and difficult real-life moral questions.
1: You know, I read some of the blogger reviews, and one of them said something like, Nothing happens in this book... For six chapters, all you do is get to know what the characters are thinking and feeling.
0: <laughs> in Jill's case, uh, she has a long and passionate interest in juvenile justice, the way our legal system deals with young offenders. She has written about that as a newspaper reporter and in her nonfiction book, Somebody Else's Children, co-written by John Hubner. And she also works with incarcerated youth. She helps lead a writing program for teens in the Santa Cruz County Juvenile Hall. In fact, uh, we did a whole show on that subject here on the 7th Avenue Project a few years ago that featured Jill along with her colleague Dennis Morton and some of the kids from Juvie. So uh, all of that is to say that Jill has been grappling in a deep way with issues of crime, punishment, power, retribution, youth, and adulthood for decades. And now she's bringing those same concerns to her latest young adult novel. It's called Furious, And it's about three girls who become avenging angels, who are not so angelic. The story is set in a modern-day high school in a beach town not unlike Santa Cruz, where Jill lives. But it's based on Greek tragedy, specifically the trilogy of plays called The Oresteia, written by the playwright Aeschylus in the 5th century B.C. The whole idea came to Jill when her daughter Gwen was in the 11th grade and trying to figure out what she wanted to be for Halloween
1: she and two girlfriends came in the house. I was in the kitchen. They came in just really excited. They knew what they were going to be. They were going to be the Furies. They had been studying Greek mythology. And so I went online, looked up the images to get costume inspiration and looked at these images and thought, holy moly, who doesn't want to be one of these girls? The pictures are either... Oh, they're either naked, voluptuous women with snakes wrapped around them, wild hair, or they're black, cloaked, with wings of bats, ugly, demon-like. These two sides and what they're about, it just spoke to me as a young adult writer. And I thought, I want to explore who these girls are.
0: The Furies in Greek mythology were these demigods, these spirits, these... Demons of Vengeance, right? Correct. Why do you suppose they were female?
1: It's really interesting how they were born. This is back to the beginning. So there was Father Heaven. Uranus. Yes, Uranus. And he did have children. They were monsters, literally. They, you know, had six heads and they were just creatures. He hated them all. He hated his children. He buried them in the earth. And held them prisoner for forever. One of the Titans, Titan Cronus, somehow got out. He laid in wait for his father. His father walks by. Cronus takes a big machete type thing. Cuts off his genitalia. Whack. The genitalia goes falling into the ocean. Blood, genitalia. What a mess. And from that spring the three Furies. So it's isn't it interesting that men's anger and men's hostility and pain gives rise to female vengeance? I don't know what to make of it.
0: I was hoping you would know what to make of it.
1: I just make of it that. (laughs) Leave it there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, Kronos then uh, fathered the classic Greek pantheon.
1: That's right. He's the titan that gave... Birth to the rest of the gods that we were more familiar
0: with—Zeus, Hera, Apollo, Athena—who
1: Athena. plays a role in mm-hmm. your in your book. So, Aeschylus
0: features the Furies in the Oresteia.
1: I call it the Oresteia. So. Oresteia. Yeah.
0: They are part of this cycle of revenge that the Oresteia is about. Correct. You have Agamemnon, who's killed his daughter Iphigenia. Right. Who is in turn killed by his wife, Clytemnestra, who is in turn killed by her son, Orestes, Mm -hmm. who is in turn tormented by the Furies for that. Correct. And then Athena intervenes.
1: And the Furies at this time represent old school justice. Aeschylus was writing at a time when the Greeks were developing a legal system, when they were getting a sense of, gee, maybe the best one to met out the justice isn't the one who's been harmed. Maybe we need like... An outside person, maybe we need like a jury to kind of look at things more objectively. So what happens in the Oresteia is that Athena comes, and she's the goddess of justice. And she basically gets a jury and said, okay, we're going to figure this out. And we're going to put Orestes on trial. And if his peers say it's understandable that he killed his mother, then you Furies have to let go. And that's what indeed happens. And um, the Furies are not pleased with that. So um, Athena does, which I love, it's such a high school thing. She makes the Furies popular. She um, sets up altars for them. She has parades for them. She dresses them in nice clothing and makes them – she just makes them part of the crowd. And they become known as the kindly ones after that. She domesticates them. She domesticates them, yes.
0: So Aeschylus tells this story of Greeks becoming more civilized. Mm-hmm. Justice, no longer a vigilante system of mm-hmm. eye for an eye, moving into a kind of code of law. right. You had this inspiration to translate a lot of these themes into a kind of high school novel mm-hmm. set in your very own town uh, that you call what do you call this town? I
1: don't call it anything. <laughs> but <laughs> I it's call obviously it, It's obviously Santa Cruz. Obviously, you know there's <laughs> a surfer statue on the cliff and there's a downtown where people are singing on the street corners. It's it's clearly Santa Cruz.
0: And and a story of three girls who are angry for various reasons mm-hmm. at people who've wronged them. And um, they are, through some um, enchantment, ultimately able to exercise their power, <laughs> yeah. to get to you know, get payback. The way they do that is by making people feel guilty. Mm. right? Correct. really guilty. Correct. That, that's
1: the um, That's the furies.: The that, Furies they, did that too. They, that's how they traditionally worked in the Aeschylus. There's a lot of talk about getting into the mind, using the ultimate weapon which is your own mind against yourself. So they're also the embodiment of guilt and shame in, in Greek mythology. They're, they're, the, they're the question of, you know, why when you do something wrong and get away with it, you know, I mean, you should feel like, great, right? You got away with something. But human nature, when you go to sleep at night, you kind of maybe lay there and think, hmm, why, do I, why don't I feel so good? And why am I playing this over and over in my mind, and why do I feel shame and guilt? The Greek's answer was, well, the Furies paid you a visit.
0: I'd like you to do a little reading here from your book. Let's go to page 274.
1: Here is an undeniable truth of human nature that we Furies take advantage of. Everyone has a point of entry. We are like mice that can always find a way into the foundation of the most fortified building. We mutate our shapes and squeeze into the tiniest crack in a person's thick wall of defense. Our experience with Brendan taught us how to go deeper, to burrow down to the very core of shame that exists in everyone. We find the thing that you can't ever truly apologize for, that you can't deny or rationalize. Like the first hurtful lie you told before you learned to justify your lies. Like the first heart you broke, before you figured out how to harden your own heart. Everyone has a memory that sits at the cusp, dividing life into before and after. Before, you fumble your words when you lie, you feel the sting of your own mean actions, you experience the hurt of others like it's your own hurt. After, you don't give a s***. You want what you want, and you take it. That's the long buried memory that we dust off and stick in each of their faces. Are you going to ask me now what my before and after lie was? <laughs> I was going
0: to withhold that question. Do you want me to? Ask no. You that? <laughs> um, these girls develop the power to discover and um, amplify whatever regret, shame, remorse, mm-hmm guilt people have and bring them to their knees, you know, mm-hmm. with that. And they apply it to some people who deserve it. I mean, I think they deserve it. Boys who've really treated them badly. A lot of bad boys in this book.
1: I know. There's some good ones. <laughs> there are some, some good there's ones. There's some really good ones. <laughs>
0: yes. And there's, uh, there's some bad girls, too, So uh, or bad women. So, yeah, it's even-handed. But they go too far. I mean, mm-hmm. they take it too far. They end up damaging a lot of people. But my question for you is, isn't that what we want, though? Don't we want people to regret the bad things they've done? And isn't that a kind of justice that we want?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I that's what I was playing with in the book. Right. Of, I think it's a really human instinct to want people who have done wrong things, hurtful things, to see what they've done, to acknowledge it, to maybe do something about it. But then, what happens is questions of power arise with the girls. And, you know, I, I've always mistrusted power. Mm. So the question for me is, you know, are people who abuse power, are they different than us somehow? Are they just like evil and bad? Or if given power, would I maybe let the power use me too? and not maybe be so even-handed and um, kind about it. Mm. So that, that's what I was playing with here. Mm. And, um, yeah.
0: Well, you got me thinking about it, because on the one hand, you could inflict punishment that is simply, you know, physical torture, physical punishment, as in the Orestia, until the Furies enter, and they inflict a kind of internal punishment. But that strikes me as almost more progressive, you know? Like... Gee, what would be a humane wish for our penal system? Wouldn't it be that people realize they'd done wrong and they really regret it and they change themselves? Mm-hmm. But, but in your book, it becomes a negative thing.
1: I mean, I think that's the question of power. I mean, I, I, I love the Furies. I mean, I, I think they stand for something that's really what we do want you know, I mean, how many times have you wanted to? You know, somebody cuts cuts you off on the freeway. You want to stop. You want to get out the the guy to say, "Wow, what an idiot I was! I I realize now the you know the the wrongness that I did and the 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 harm I could have caused." And I really apologize. That's what we want, right?
0: Well, actually, a lot of people would just rather beat him up, you know, and they don't care. I mean, these days in America, mm-hmm. it seems to me revenge is a big focus, right? And yeah. a lot of it's really punitive. It's not even about making people realize re- and regret and apologize. It's not even that civilized.
1: Yeah, I have a, I had a, a political underpinning while I was writing this, and I was thinking very much of that, of how we've almost gone back to a time of eye for an eye, that there's so much anger around. I just feel anger everywhere. It just feels kind of pent up but right on the surface, just ready to explode. And like these three girls, very similar to what they had. And along comes somebody who is going to take that often righteous anger. People are mad about things that maybe they should be mad about. People are angry about the economy. People are angry about not being heard. And somebody comes along and manipulates it, gathers it together, and unleashes it for their own purpose, not necessarily at the the right targets. I see this in juvenile hall. I talk to the kids about this a lot of you know why are you angry at that other brown skin boy over there who you know has the same exact background as you who has this lives in the same poverty as you but in a different gang. You know, why Why is your anger focused there rather than at what I think of as, like, the justified anger of, you know, who is really keeping you uneducated and who is preventing you from making a decent wage? So I, I see it, and I see it in juvenile hall.
0: So you were saying just a moment ago that someone is exploiting this anger. Mm-hmm. In the case of the kids you deal with, some who have been involved in gang violence, mm-hmm. who is it?
1: You know, it's not a direct manipulation. It's not like in the book where there's one person standing right. up there. But you know, I think media manipulates it. Um, you know, I, 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 it's not like there's one person, but but their anger has been deflected. I mean, anger is a good thing. Anger can be a good thing. It it motivates. It moves. It it can be a really beautiful, great, important thing. If it's directed in a in a way that gets results that that help, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um,
0: in your book, you do have uh, someone who's manipulating these three girls. Mm-hmm. A cool girl.
1: <laughs> she's beyond cool. Yeah, beyond cool. She's beyond. Super cool.
0: cares about it, but she's actually uh, supernatural. Right. Uh, you call her Ambrosia. Is she taken from myth? Also,
1: she is. I made her up. Totally made her up. But she's the figure, like, I thought, of, okay, like, if Clytemnestra never bought that the Furies are now at rest, if she, like, still didn't get re- her revenge that she, that was her due, damn it, <laughs> that this would be the figure. So she she is the women of the past who did not get their revenge.
0: So she's Clytemnestra. She might be Electra, too. She might be Electra. From Aeschylus. Yes, Both vengeful, angry women. Iphigenia. Iphigenia. Yeah.
1: A lot of women who, like, you know, got sacrificed and didn't get their due.
0: The book is called Furious. The characters are contemporary embodiments of the the Furies. It's a lot about anger. And one might think, oh, a young adult novelist is writing for entertainment, um, you know, writing for commercial purposes. But I felt this was really personal.
1: Yeah, I think it is. I well, mean, tell me
0: about your own Furiousness.
1: Yeah. Oh, well, I'm not against entertainment. I'm going to put that in there. I got a good review that I wanted to read because I felt like it kind of captured. Great. It called It called Furious a combination of poignant coming of age with creative satire equals a fun treatment on a big topic. How You Grow Confidence and Establish Identity in a Rough-and-Tumble Landscape. Mm. So I, I, I did want to emphasize that it's actually kind of funny, too, that the that mm. I think it is that mm. um, the characters are a little over the top. Mm. So um, my own furiousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, maybe we can go back to high school. I mean, if you want to understand America, yeah. I think you could start with
1: high school. The world is divided into two groups of people. <laughs> Those who loved high school can't say enough good things about it and those who could not wait to get out the door because it was not very pleasant.
0: Do you think there are as many people who loved it as who hated it?
1: Yeah, I Really? Do. Wow. I do. Okay. I do.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about the ones who hated it. Um,
1: and they're all in YA novels.
0: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 I think... I suspect that some people think of YA as as being a, a juvenile ju- genre, right? But in fact, it is actually looking at that crucible that mm-hmm. shapes adult psyches, whether we know it or not. You look at American politics, I can sort of tell who Newt, Newt Gingrich was in high school, you know? I can sort of tell who Sarah Palin was in high school. I can kind of tell who Bill Clinton was in high school. I mean, show me the high schooler and I'll show you the adult, you know? <laughs>
1: It's a it's an intense age, right? I mean, so obviously,
0: so so why fiction, young adult fiction, uh, a genre that I think probably might be a little marginalized, you know, in the whole literary hierarchy.
1: Fastest selling genre. Oh yeah, I didn't now, mean
0: that it was commercially now. suspect at all, but that it actually is confronting issues that are sort of at the core of uh, you know America's psychology, don't you think? And I'm saying America just because the the ones I'm familiar with are all American. I don't know what YA is like in other countries. I don't either. That, well, I, I've be been told that high school is not, you know, what it is here, elsewhere.
1: It's not as intense.
0: It's not as intense. intense not as divisive. Cliquish not as yeah, and- clickish. Yeah, in a lot of other countries, yeah. so it may not apply so much elsewhere.
1: Yeah, it's a you know, it's a genre that really goes into the experience of firsts, and actually, while I'm writing, I try to remember that of. Try to get back to a time of first. First time a friend screwed you over and you were hurt. The, f- the first time you fell in love. The first time you cheated on the test. You know, it's just so powerful.
0: And every day you have to go to a series of smallish rooms where you are exposed <laughs> without <laughs> escape to the very people who you're most sensitized to. Day in and day out.
1: Yeah, it's a huge dysfunctional family. And you know, it's <laughs> and you know especially if it's a small school, you've developed these roles and and everybody knows what's gonna piss somebody off and they know how to do it and and things happen so fast and concentrated, you know, relationships, you know, you you're seeing someone, you're cheated on, and you break up in a week. And with all the intense emotions around that.
0: Tell me about your high school days.
1: Oh, boy.
0: You grew up in Philadelphia. I did.
1: I grew up in Philadelphia. I went to a really big urban high school. My graduating class was something like 1500. Northeast High. It was actually kind of a famous school. There was a a documentary film made about it as this is going to be the high school of the future. Oh, how so? Um it was big. kids were tracked, so you from early on, you were tracked to be academic or tracked to be commercial tracked vocational vocational, mm-hmm. and then also we were a science and math magnet, mm. so we were funded by NASA, and we <laughs> you have a look of shock. We had a student astronaut program, we had a capsule that student astronauts would go and live in for a while. I was a student engineer, and we we kind of did um, simulated NASA stuff.
0: Live in for a while? Yeah,
1: you know, live in and eat, like, space food and and do tests in there. Did you do it? um, No, all my friends were in it. But girls did it as well as boys. Yes, one of my friends was an engineer, one of the engineers. I remember when the... um, Harvey Rubin was a, um astronaut. I remember when he came out after his one-week or two-week stay and, you know, when we had little flags to wave when he came out, just like if the spaceship had really landed.
0: <laughs> this sounds like a pretty, I don't know, posh high
1: school? No, it was very, <laughs> not posh at all. It was very, um, I guess you would call it back in those days, blue-collar. Oh, really? Yeah. And yet it yeah. had
0: a NASA program. I mean,
1: it was wow. it, it was urban, you know, so uh-huh. it was kind of... Let's, you know, try. So and,
0: so which of these characters were you?
1: Which of these girls? Yeah. Um, well, obviously in creating them, I'm a little bit of each of them. Personality-wise, I was probably most like Meg.
0: She's the heroine.
1: Yeah. The protagonist. Uh, she's a foster child. I was not a foster child. I had two wonderful parents, loving parents, but I, um, I think I had her shyness and quietness and her desire to be kind of hidden and afraid of making t- mistakes, but also underneath that kind of a really sarcastic wit. Mm. And she talks about in the, in the book, knowing that there's something in her that is just going to make her special that she knows it's in there and she has to figure out a way. What is it? What's going to make her different? What is what is it going to be? And I felt like that through most of high school.
0: So you had a sense that you were special in some way.
1: I think most high school kids feel that way. They feel that nobody really gets them. Nobody really knows the real them, that there's something just brewing and bubbling inside and it's going to come out and they're going to be great and then they're going to show... All the kids who ignored them or picked on them, you know, and all those kids are going to feel sorry and they're going to go back to that high school reunion and really flaunt it.
0: You know, yeah. that, that's why I said you you know—you could look <laughs> at politicians, for instance. Some of them are settling scores to this day, I think. I think so. Celebrities, politicians, business people, all kinds of people. Um, our protagonist, Meg, endures some serious humiliations. Which, of course, is what everybody fears the most in high school, I think.
1: Day in and day out. And Poor was, Meg.
0: Were you recalling any of your own as you wrote this?
1: Um, This wasn't me, but there was a kid I knew who was really, really unpopular. And to get popular, she thought she could get popular by, like, addressing Valentines to everybody and standing and handing them out, which is like the most uncool thing to do really super uncool so she did so i knew somebody who did that and she was mocked oh i mean think about it oh no it's, you know yeah, the kind mortifying. of the kind of skinny <laughs> shy girl just giving the you know the popular jocks valentines
0: and the boys are really mean to the girls in in your book you know uh, there's a yeah. there's a cadre of boys who
1: surfer guys surfer, surfer guys. dudes cool
0: surfer guys who the torment plagues. the girls Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Were there guys like that in your high school?
1: There was a group. Yeah, there was a group. They were. I didn't grow up in a surf town, so they tended no, didn't to be mean more the the kind of the football players. They turned into um, corporate attorneys, if you can <laughs> picture. There's a group of them. They're all corporate attorneys.
0: Um, well, what about you and Vengeance? I mean, I, you know, I, 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 this may get old, me probing you about your private life, but. Again, I felt like you were tapping into something personal when you wrote this. You weren't just abstractly, you know, playing with these themes.
1: Are you asking me if I have a lot of pent up anger? I
0: meant, yeah. you know, did you look at that side of yourself? Did you examine oh, that side of yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can. It, it's funny. I was at a book reading, and you know, I read, and this lady raised her hand and said something like, "I just don't get it. I, I, how do you write anger? I never feel angry." I just like, you know, when somebody does something, I just kind of like say, oh, well, you know, (laughs) sometimes people do stuff like that. And I was thinking, that's not me. You know, 30 years of Zen meditation to get to the point where I don't flash the finger all the time.
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah. You're also a black belt in karate.
1: Brown belt. Brown belt. Brown belt, yeah.
0: Have you ever used it on anybody? (laughs) I take that as a yes.
1: (laughs) Um, No, no, no. I've really age helps. Age helps with anger. Uh-huh. Yeah, but as a teenager, I was a really angry teenager. I um,
0: what were you mad about?
1: Kind of everything. I just felt isolated, not heard. Like Meg, I was skinny, undeveloped. Close group of girlfriends suddenly turned on me, mocked me mercilessly. There's a scene in the book where. Somebody shoves a kid into a locker and shuts it. I got shoved into a locker, and it was locked, and I had to stand there and, you know, bang on the locker. I laugh now. Um, I went through a rough seventh and eighth grade. It was like all my friends turned on me. Why do you think? I was a dork. I was really a dork. When I think back on that, it was like, okay, sixth grade, everybody's, you know – little kids playing and seventh grade comes along and hears Jill going, Hey guys, let's just go play. Let's jump rope. And all my friends were like, "Uh, you know, like we're going to just sit here and make out. And yeah. And I just was like, Oh, who would want to do that when you could play? So they turned on me and it was, it was really painful. You know, I caught up in ninth and 10th grade, but, um, it was scarring. It was really, really scarring.
0: Did you ever get revenge on anybody?
1: Um, I'm f- the, the ringleader, and I won't name names. <laughs> she, um, she's now friends with me on Facebook. It took a while. It took a while for me to go, okay, I will accept her friendship.
0: Oh wow! So yeah. as adults, many years later. Yeah,
1: she's a grandmother. I should, you know, get over it, right? <laughs> That
0: is one of the questions, is how do you get over things? The way your characters get over things, um, is by learning about forgiveness. One I'm not the sure things, they learn. Well um, I, I think they're exposed to it at least.
1: I think what they learn, and a little spoiler alert here, is that I think they learn that it, it has to stop at some point, that innocent people start to get hurt if it doesn't stop. And make has a big decision to make in the book, you know, between carrying through revenge until it feels good. And I don't know if it ever feels good. I'm, I mean, that's one of the questions I ask. Is it ever enough? When somebody really hurts you, gets a really bad hurt in, is it, ev- is it ever enough? Or do you, you know, you get something and then you kind of play it out a little more in your mind?
0: Well, you've spent a lot of time... Working in and studying criminal justice in America. Mostly juvenile justice, right? Yeah, juvenile. Which is maybe not as punitive as adult justice. I mean,
1: it's pretty bad. I but mean, the idea isn't is, throw away the key, is yeah, it? Yeah, Santa Cruz is just a model for the rest of the country. It's so different here in the juvenile system than it is elsewhere. I've been in places where it's no different than the adult system. Okay. Yeah.
0: So the idea is make them suffer.
1: Yeah, we're, you know, we're still a. Old Testament culture. Hmm. I think it's really hard for people to hear about some of these crimes and then not have that come up. You know, they did an adult crime. They serve adult time. I think people have a really hard time stepping back from that.
0: That is one thing I wanted to ask you. You hear about the crimes, as we do. We read about them in the newspaper. We hear the news. Then you meet... In some cases, the perpetrators, right? Yeah. Juvenile perpetrators. Some of the crimes are really serious.
1: You know, a good percentage of them are serious.
0: And then you meet them, and you work with them, and you teach them, and you bring out a side of them. I've seen this myself. Mm -hmm. Again, people can go to the show we did together to hear kids talking about their writing. So what do you do with that? The nastiness of some crimes... And the humanity of the people who committed them.
1: Um you know, for a while I tried really hard not to know their crime. When I first started, I, I needed to intentionally not know their crime because you know, some crimes are really incredibly repugnant to me. And it would be really hard to kind of sit across from someone and see see their humanity if I could visualize. That kind of passed after a while, and, and where I am now is that I feel like we're all capable of all sorts of things, and I get to meet these kids when they're sober, when they're not on drugs, when they're not surrounded by gang influence, you know, when there are not a lot of things that contributed to this particular crime. I mean, I don't know any kid up there who, with no reason, nothing behind it, just went out and committed a crime. As soon as you get to know them, and I'm not excusing the crime, they, you know, some of them, I agree they shouldn't be out in society until they learn what they need to learn. But when you, when you get to see them and understand where they came from, You see, you see the humanity in them. And, and then you also, for me, I understand they're going to continue to have a life. Some of them are going to prison for a really, really long time. But even in prison, they're going to have a life. And in whatever way they can learn to not cause suffering, I'm down with that.
0: Mm.
1: Whether it's talking about their crime or writing about it or writing about their feelings, I believe that that eases suffering for themselves and for whoever else they come across.
0: Do you see much regret and remorse, guilt?
1: Um, You know, they're guys. It's really hard for them to say that. They posture a lot. One-on-one, yes. Not in a group. They just posture too much, and they, they just say... I don't mean to flip here to when they say they say silly things, but when you confront them one on one, they will actually say, I didn't mean that. I felt really terrible. Yeah, I, I do see remorse. And, and the ones that I get to know best will eat. We'll, they'll talk about laying in their cell, laying in bed late at night, kind of replaying why they did what they did. How could they have done that? Hmm.
0: You're going to show them this book?
1: Um, Yeah. You know, I actually, when I first started it, I would talk to them individually. Hey, I'm writing this book about these three badass girls who get the power to take revenge. And, and you know, I would talk to them about taking revenge and why do you take revenge and what does it feel like to kind of pay somebody back. So I, th- I'll pro- I was talking about the other day that I'm going to bring it in. I think they'll like the cover.
0: But we should say that this book is not about physical violence for the most part. The power that these girls get is to make people feel bad, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is quite powerful. Um, Did you wrestle with making it more sensational? I mean, media now, there's a lot of blood. There's a lot of sex. Mm -hmm. It's not so much about inner life. You know? <laughs> and this is? Yeah. So I, I wonder, did you wrestle with that? Like, would this be popular if it doesn't have a lot of sex and blood and you know, over the top action?
1: Yeah, yeah, I did wrestle with that. I and this is my first fantasy, so this is my first time really going into this kind of world and it's re- it was really uncomfortable a for me. A world
0: dominated by vampire stories, yeah. uh hunger games, you know, fight to the death stories, right, things like that. Right. right?
1: Right. And, um, I have a couple of big explosive scenes, and, and I, I had to kind of read them aloud saying, is this silly? Cause it, it's just not my natural instinct. I come out of journalism. I mean, my, my trajectory has been journalism, all fact mm-hmm. into, fiction, you know, their characters in the real world doing and saying real things into fantasy, whoa, they can maybe fly now I can. So I I did wrestle with it. You know, I read some of the blogger reviews. And one of them said something like nothing happens in this book. For six chapters, all you do is get to know what the characters are thinking and feeling. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I thought, well, okay, you know, my writing instinct is is to be in character and ideas, and and I I did the best I could with the lightning bolts.
0: Uh, I'm going to ask you because you're my resident expert, the closest thing I'm going to get to a young adult fiction expert. Um, does YA have to deliver a moral lesson? Does it have to be something other than nihilistic or sensationalistic?
1: Why A can be whatever it wants. Okay. It's you know, it, I mean, it's it's like saying, does contemporary adult okay. fiction have okay. to? It, it's just. An age group.
0: Mm-hmm. How many young adult novels have you written
1: now? I've written two middle grade and two YA.
0: Okay. So middle grade's not YA.
1: Yeah, middle grade's just a little younger. It's... Um, it's
0: not children's lit. It's not... <laughs> well,
1: it's fourth grade through eighth grade. Okay. It tends to be a little sweeter. Right. A little bit more... Um, maybe a little more moral. I write it and I want the kids to come away feeling like... I understand how that character dealt with that. You know, and I don't know about other YA writers, but when I write, I I have this sense of like, okay, I want these kids to go through some tough things, but they don't necessarily have to do it themselves. They can go through it in, in a book mm. and experience it that way.
0: Uh, when you were writing this, did you have an ideal reader in mind? Mhm. Could you picture my daughter. Oh, really? My
1: daughter a couple of years younger. Yeah. She's
0: now in her 20s. She's
1: in her 20s and um yeah, I read pretty much everything to her. As I'm typing, I, you know, part of my mind goes, she'll laugh at that. So she she was kind of my ideal reader.
0: And what she think?
1: She loves it. She <laughs> loves it. And in fact, she loves the cover. I mean, she's a she's at that age where she can remember back to what she liked reading at that age.
0: Oh, and the cover, by the way, you just mentioned. Oh, I was going to Describe
1: say, the, yeah, the cover, I was going to say, my daughter loved the cover because she said, oh gosh, when I was 13 or 14, I would have stared at this cover. There's three girls, each is different looking. They're in white, Greekish garb, but also with like white. Almost see through t shirts. Right. So it's kind of an odd contemporary Greek look. And they're holding hands. They're above the ocean. There's a dark Santa Cruz sky, stormy with lightning bolts, which we don't get in Santa Cruz, but if gods were coming, we would get them here. Yeah. And their hair, you know, all three girls' hair are sort of like they look like they were doing a science experiment when they touch the they get electric. The
0: Tesla coil. Yeah,
1: the Tesla coil, and their hair is all standing up and entangled. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, when my daughter saw it, she said that when she was a kid, she would have just puzzled over which one was she. Yeah.
0: Again, the book is Furious by my guest Jill Wolfson here on the 7th Avenue Project on 88.9 KUSP. I'm Robert Polly. Your daughter liked it. But what's her first name by the way? Gwen. 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 Gwen yeah. liked it. And you and you acknowledge her along with some other friends and family members at the very end. But uh Gwen liked it, but were you worried about the general teen reaction? And I, I'm wondering what it's like to write for that audience of critics, uh potential critics, as opposed to like adult critics.
1: Yeah, well uh you know, I'm a neurotic writer and you worry about everyone, what everyone <laughs> oh. thinks. Every single person you worry about what they think. Um you know, middle grade was so wonderful to write for. They're, you know, wide-eyed fourth graders. You can't do anything wrong. They want your autograph. They love you. Teenagers are different. Teenagers are way different. And um, they're scarier. And I was scared of teenagers back when I was a teenager. They're very opinionated. They like what they like. They want it to be the way they want it to be and not afraid to say it. And Good for them um I'm getting some really great reaction, some reaction, "This is not the book that I wanted, and my answer is, "Well'll go write the book you want that's what teenagers should do. Go write it
0: We're in an era when you get to be easily exposed to all the feedback too, if you want to be by going online <laughs> right <laughs> We had a conversation where you were feeling pretty vulnerable, and I was saying,
1: yeah, Jill,
0: you know." If you're that, you know, sensitive about that kind of criticism, maybe have a friend select the best reviews, you know, the best online reviews. Right. But you waited in there and checked out the comments.
1: Yeah, I waited in. I I had this idea of, okay, I mean, it's writers sit alone and you really don't frequently hear what people have to say. I mean, you get the professional reviews. But the only time you get to, like, really, you know, if you go to a school visit or you kind of go on a bus and there's somebody reading your book. That happened to me once on an airplane. And I kind of just sat there watching them. Like, are they <laughs> laughing? Where are they? And then, boy, when they shut the book, like, in the middle of something, it was like, just a stab to my heart. Oh. <laughs> you know? Oh,
0: You never sidled up to him and said, yeah, what would you no. think of that book?
1: No. No, I didn't. <laughs> um. So yeah, I went on because I think you can learn. I mean, you can learn many things. I think what I learned is not everybody's going to like every book. What a what a concept.
0: You finding much difference in the response of boys and girls reading it?
1: I'm finding mostly girls reading it. It is yeah. kind of aimed at a girl audience. It's a audience. girl audience. Yeah. Um the cover is so clearly girls. It's in. about girl power. It's about girl power. There's yeah. there's some boys in it, but find i'm still still struggling a little to write boys to write teenage boys (laughs) i raised one i should know but i you know i just when i'm bringing up that deep part to create a character she's very feminine
0: i think i would be terrified of that audience again high school can be such a culture of backbiting of various kinds of snobbery and rejection, and of course, as one who spends a lot of time online, I see a lot of comments by people who I can pretty much guess are teens, and they're vicious. Yeah. And beyond that, I would be very worried as an adult of like not being able to master whatever the current... L- you know language conventions are <laughs> like even the coolest expressions i can come up with are probably a couple years out of date
1: at best you have to be really careful about that yeah i mean particularly in publishing i mean this book was written like really written like three years ago right and so i try to steer away from contemporary slang contemporary slang from technology mm. I and mean, p- people don't talk on cell phones smart. anymore very smart, I mean it dates it really fast. Yeah. I don't want somebody focusing on that right, like they're missing all the the ideas and the themes and the the stuff because they're saying nobody says "Oh my God anymore you know, <laughs> and that's all they're stuck there um, right, so it just it's a, it's a thin line if you're writing contemporary because you wanna sound current and you wanna sound like kids talk, but I mean, you can't make it totally because it'll be be gone. I was
0: thinking that the perfect reader for this book would be an intelligent, mature kid, Mm -hmm. a serious kid who was ready to grapple with these issues, who didn't want to be talked down to, and who didn't just want to be a teenager, you know, and just hear other teens speaking (laughs) in your characters.
1: Yeah. I I mean, that's a good ideal reader. They should buy the book. (laughs) What was the hardest
0: part for you to write?
1: Strangely enough, some of the the action describing, you know, she stands, she makes a fist, she throws her fist into his face. It felt so awkward, and I had never really written that kind of... Even with your karate background? Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> why I, I would imagine that. I imagine that. Yeah, so that was um, a little challenging.
0: There's a scene in which uh, Meg is... Badly humiliated, it's a cringe-inducing scene. Oh, really? Well, if one can remember what it was like to be as self-conscious as one was in high school,
1: you're talking about the the Halloween party scene. Mm-hmm. She's humiliated in a kind of a sex scene with a, a cell phone camera mm-hmm. taking pictures. And that's happened, and, of course. And that's happened, like two suicides of girls yeah. who were bullied. And um, I wrote that before that.
0: Oh, really? Yeah. Huh.
1: I mean, I was imagining what would be the worst. I mean, what's what's a modern-day humiliation? Of, right. Um, having pictures go around that you can't escape.
0: Yeah. yeah. You got it. So I was wondering if that was hard to write. I mean, just feeling those feelings, you know, in your character.
1: I, It wasn't that hard to write because I knew it was coming. Ah. <laughs> As I was writing it, I knew she was building up, and I knew that I was going to have to humiliate her. Mm. Really push her over the edge.
0: But aren't you rooting for your character?
1: No, I am I think I'm more like, what is she going to do?
0: Right. So you anyway. don't mind, like, putting a character through some version of hell?
1: No. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, you know, it, in service to plot, it has uh, to happen. Uh-huh. Yeah. I
0: uh, remember um, interviewing Richard Ford, the novelist, and... He had his most famous character, Frank Bascom, Mm -hmm. who's the protagonist of his famous trilogy, The Sports Writer, uh, Independence Day, and The Lay of the Land. And a lot of people have gotten to know this guy more than just about any character in contemporary fiction, you know, literary fiction. Um, And so I figured Richard Ford was probably very close to him. And he said, oh, no, he's like Charlie McCarthy. At the end of the day, I just put him in his box. (laughs)
1: It's funny. (laughs) It's funny. Yeah, that was disillusioning. <laughs> yeah, you know, in a, in my previous book, I killed off a teenage girl gymnast in the first scene. And oh, yeah, my daughter was a gymnast. Oh, so mm-hmm.
0: no problem there.
1: I actually cried a little bit writing that, but I was, but yeah, they have to do stuff, you right, know. Um, right, I mean, you can't have these nice people sitting around being nice. No, no, you have to do things to them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and you've obviously (laughs) developed calluses where you need to.
1: (laughs) Um, Unless the Furies come and make me feel guilty for putting my characters through bad things.
0: Did you go from being a journalist directly to young adult fiction, or did you do adult fiction in between?
1: I went from being a journalist to a really horrible adult fiction writer. My my story was that I finished a book on the foster care juvenile justice system, nonfiction. Nonfiction. This is and, the one we mentioned earlier. Right. Yeah. And um, I was not done with the stories. I just had been given so much information and so many heartfelt personal stories. that I just felt like it was not done. So I decided I'm going to write a novel. You know, that's what you do, right? Just...
0: A lot of journalists nurse yeah, that right, that fantasy or right, that ambition, yeah. Right.
1: So I you know, I wrote I sat down and wrote this novel about or at least hundred and fifty pages into it, and um sent it to my agent. Agent got right back to me, said, This is the worst piece of writing I've ever read, pretty much. You can't write fiction. No, no, Don't y- try your agent didn't actually say it. Yes. That. She did. She said she did. that? She was, she was being kind, I think. The worst? Maybe not the worst. She said it was really bad and that I can't write fiction.
0: That doesn't sound right to me. Why? Because how could she know that you didn't have the capacity to write fiction? Okay, so the first one wasn't to her liking. I
1: think it was just really bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was right.
0: But you didn't give up on fiction.
1: No, I didn't. I put it aside for a long time. and um, That must
0: have felt horrible, though.
1: Oh, we had a bonfire with the paper.
0: You mean your manuscript?
1: Yeah, the manuscript. The only copy? Well, it was in the computer, so it's not quite as dramatic. (laughs) It was symbolic. It was symbolic, right.
0: Does it still exist on your computer? I
1: don't think so. It was a good thing to go.
0: Had I known about it, I would have asked you to bring it in and read from it.
1: (laughs) Oh, Oh, that's so cruel. That is really cruel.
0: Um. So you put it away, the the fiction oh, yeah. writing for, but but something led you back.
1: Yeah, it was the foster kids, that I just felt like I I had still more to say about them. You know, in my head I said, just sit down, stop trying to be all literary, stop trying to do anything more than tell their stories in a direct way. So I sat down and I just started to write this story about this foster kid. And as I was writing, the voice got younger and younger, and I realized, kind of as I was writing it, that what I wanted to be doing was telling a story about foster kids to other kids who might not have known what this life was like. And it was the really easy piece of writing. I've never kind of written that easily. What was the what, name of that one? Um, what I Call Life. That's mm. a middle grade. Oh. Yeah.
0: Wow, so this move to to a different age group really kind of liber- liberated you. I've been thinking a lot about the differences between young adult, or do you say middle grade fiction? Middle grade. Yeah. Uh, the, this writing for for younger readers and why it's different. And one one answer is yes. I mean, the adult world, at least a certain kind of literary fiction, is designed to to please a sophisticated person who is weighing you against the other works. You know, throughout history, right? Mm-hmm. And so an ambitious novelist is always trying to find a place for themselves in the in the pantheon, you mm-hmm. know? Whereas the, when you're writing for these younger readers, it's really about story, isn't it? I mean, it isn't about impressing them on a technical level in the slightest.
1: No, I— I I never think of that, like, well, I'm going to really wow them with this reference to...
0: (laughs) Or some narrative structural twist that's very original or any other technique. There's
1: some of that. I mean, I I think kids appreciate story told in different, fun, new ways. I think they appreciate that. But I think there's less... Like they're going to notice that turn of phrase. Mm-hmm. They're going to they're going to feel the turn of phrase, and it's going to resonate as true or not true. But I don't think they're going to pick it apart the way academics might. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: so it just got you closer to the basics. Really. It got
1: me closer to story, story, yeah, and character, right? And like, what do people do, and why do they do it, and how do they react to each other? And what do they learn? And what mistakes do they make?
0: Do your characters ever surprise you?
1: Yeah. One of the characters started out as a girl turned into a gay boy.
0: Oh, in this book? Yeah. This yeah. is Raymond.
1: Raymond. He just... Yeah, I wanted this character who had a lot to be angry about, but for various reasons, didn't have the same rage. I I wanted this counterbalance of how somebody uses whoever he is to just not have that kind of rage, to find a way out of it. And um, he was going to be a fourth girl, and he just kind of mutated to Raymond.
0: (laughs) Ah, Yeah. Why do you think?
1: I think I wanted a gay character um, because the possibilities that he had been bullied and... Feel, felt like an outcast. So I, want, I wanted a character who had that all that possibility. And he, you know, I wanted a good friend for Meg with no romantic entanglements. So there they are.
0: And he's the character who's most comfortable in his own skin.
1: Exactly. In
0: his own self.
1: Right. And he has a lot to not be comfortable about. Mm. He's really annoying.
0: <laughs> in a nerdy sort of way. Yeah, in
1: a nerdy smart alecky, yeah, funny kind of way. lovable. Yeah.
0: Um, what did you read uh, when you were a teen, when you were in high school?
1: I was not a big reader at all. I told you about my high school. We were the math and science crew. And, in fact, kind of English class was something you sort of just had to get through.
0: Really? So I, you didn't read for entertainment?
1: I did not read for entertainment. You read
0: math and science books?
1: I read math and science. And, um... I, I kind of remember like skimming books to like get the paper done, fudge it. I don't remember reading critically or deeply, or f- for insight into myself at all.
0: Hmm. And I, I don't think publishing even had a quote "YA" young adult category no, in those days.
1: No, I. I the big influence on me was Nancy Drew. Uh huh. Those, um, and I think these were earlier. These were kind of middle school and. Yeah. I read the, I read every single one of those and I, what appealed to me there was, you know, I felt my life was so boring and here was mystery and here was a girl with a cool blue car and no mom, just the dad, no mom like, you know, telling her how to be and solving these mysteries. And I, I just thought they were great. And that's who I wanted to be.
0: You've told me, we've talked a little bit about uh, how you grew up, and you've told me that you came from a family, a world, a neighborhood where women weren't expected really to do anything.
1: No, I didn't, growing up, I didn't know any, I'm trying to think, I don't think I knew any women who worked outside the house. They were housewives, hard job raising kids, nothing wrong with that, but there were really no role models so you
0: weren't encouraged to get a career or, or have ambition of any kind?
1: No. I mean, I maybe a nurse cuz you could meet the doctor. Oh. It, things were changing. Things were dramatically changing. I would say like my sister's a couple years younger than me, and by that time it was, yeah, you know, oh, of course she'll go to college, but not for me so much.
0: But you had a strong independent streak.
1: I guess so. Some would call it Pig-headed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. But it wasn't fiction that was inspiring you.
1: No, I went into college as a math and physics major. Uh-huh.
0: No, but I mean, yeah. it wasn't uh, stories that you could relate to that were inspiring you to do what you did.
1: No, I wish somebody had shown me what to read and said, here, here, here's a like a little bit of a roadmap to help you. I don't know. Well, there weren't that many about girls. There weren't, there weren't. We were winging it out
0: there, well, you're making up for it now. I mean, there's a generation of girls that have plenty to identify with in the world of fiction and and nonfiction
1: thank goodness there's there's something for every girl I think you know angry girls and funny girls and they can find themselves in lots of books
0: and furious girls
1: There's a lot of them
0: well, thank you, Jill. thanks, Robert. Jill Wolfson's new novel is Furious, and Jill and her book will be appearing at Bookshop Santa Cruz this coming Tuesday, May 7th at 7.30 p.m. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly signing off. I will be back next week.